When I'm at my end Tears pouring down And I can't see past What's in front of me now When it's all too much For this heart to take There's one name I call One prayer that I pray I entitled this teaching, Our Living Hope in the Midst of Suffering. And to be honest, between all the prayers and the manifestations, it's already done. <laughs> you guys have already given pretty much the whole teaching, but uh, we'll, we'll see if we can add a little bit to it. Um, I think the living hope in the midst of suffering is a theme for First Peter, first epistle that Peter wrote. He wrote it uh, during a time when there was growing suspicion of Christianity. The people thought that the Christians used magic to deceive the ignorant people that, you know, people that didn't know about philosophy and reason and so forth. So they thought that, yeah, these people were just hoodwinking everybody and that they, they thought they were haters of humans. They didn't think they liked people. The Christians, uh, because they just stuck to themselves and they hated everybody else. They blamed the Christians for all kinds of different evils, for natural disasters, for the societal ills that were going on at the time. They even blamed them for infanticide um, because of the body and blood of, uh, of uh, Christ, how they would eat it. And I don't know, he wasn't a child then anyway, but that's what they thought. Doesn't uh, <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason to it. But it was not a very good environment at that time. And this would have been, Peter wrote, around 60 to 62, somewhere in that neighborhood, A.D. It was actually written shortly before Rome burned. And being the scapegoats, Nero blamed the Christians for it. And so they were in deep trouble then in, in people's minds. And of course, Nero started the harshest persecution up to that point after that. So they were having hard times back then. Things weren't going totally well for them. And it's interesting because in First uh, Peter chapter 4 and verse 12, it says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Well, that was written just a couple years before Rome burned and Nero really started the heavy duty persecution. Um, and I think it's, don't think it's strange because Jesus said that. He said, you're going to experience these uh, persecutions and so forth. So it's happening. So in, in first Peter, then moving ahead there a little bit in chapter five and verse eight, it says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil as a roaring lion, there's a good image for you, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. So yeah, I, I don't know what it would be like to be out in the jungle and all of a sudden have a roaring lion standing in front of me. And, you know, yeah, you got to be sober, be vigilant. You got to avoid those things. Um, you have to always be on guard because he's always putting ideas in your head. He's putting ideas in your head like, oh, you're too tired to go to fellowship today. <laughs> well, Evelyn didn't fall for it because she was sober. She was vigilant and she she beat the devil that time. And, you know, what a thing to be able to just beat the devil. It's one thing to be on a football team and beat the other team. But, man, to be able to beat the devil, that's just, wow, that's just really something. But, yeah, be so, because he's always trying to devour us, always trying to take us off the track, to, to ruin our lives. That's his nature. 
in Job, it said, remember, it said in Job that he's walking to and fro in the earth, back and forth, up and down. So he's always looking for somebody's life to destroy. And so we have to be vigilant on that and, and not let him do that. You have to keep the word in your mind at all times, every thought pretty much. So in verse 9, then, First uh, Peter 5, it says, Who resist? Resist the devil steadfast in the faith. That's what we do. It's the scriptures that were delivered to us. That's how we resist him. There's no other way. It's not going to be by your own power for sure. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So we're not alone in this. This is part and parcel of of getting born again. Again, Jesus said we're going to suffer. And well, that's just how it is. But in verse 10, but, and you know, we all know but's a big word, but this is a really big word because even though we suffer, we know it says, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his glory, unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Now, I, I use the King James Version and mostly because it works with all the Bible software I have. You can click on different words and verses and stuff. But, um, but so that's, that's what that, and that's a little bit unclear. It says, make you perfect, establish, strength, and settle. That's a little bit unclear as to when that exactly happens. The King James kind of makes it look like it's the present tense, but it, to some degree it is. But for the most part, and in the, most of the Greek text, it's the future. Uh, it's in the future tense. Uh, the revised English version reads as follows. And after ye have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you in Christ to his everlasting glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So this is coming in the future. Uh, there's an author, Michael Heiser. He said that a, a lot of this stuff is already but not yet. And that's a lot of Christianity. That's a lot of what we have. So, and this is kind of, this is kind of a good example of that because we are being made perfect. We're being established. We're being strengthened. We're being settled, but it's not a done deal and it will be in the future. Hence our hope. That's our hope. It, it also in for, uh, chapter five, verse one of first Peter there, it's, it talks about the glory that shall be revealed. And in verse four of that chapter, it says, ye shall receive a crown of glory. So clearly the context the, within the textual evidence itself. Um, yeah, we suffer for a while, but we have the hope of being made perfect, established, strengthened and settled. So we have something to look forward to. Definitely. And it says the God of all grace. Well, that makes it sound like there might be other gods. Well, there is, as a matter of fact. There's a whole bunch of other gods. There's Baal, there's Ashtaroth, Moloch, Dagon, and there's a whole bunch of other ones. These are mentioned in the Bible themselves. So these are all gods. They're powerful spiritual beings. But God, specifically Yahweh, is opposed to Baal, etc., etc. He's the one that has all the grace. All the other gods have no grace. Our God has all the grace. And grace is just treating us with favor, with regard, with kindness, with goodwill. That's Yahweh's domain. Yahweh has all the supply of that. The other gods have Zippo. They would just soon poke your eye out as give you a plug nickel. Okay. They have 
no regard for you. They have no favor for you, no goodwill, no kindness, no grace. It all belongs to God, to our God, Yahweh, our Father. Grace was his invention. It was his idea. It's not that Baal came up and said, hey, God, why don't we make some grace here? Give people regard, favor, kindness. Didn't go that way. God, totally up to him to come up with this whole concept of favor, regard for for people, for human beings. The other gods basically hated human beings. They were meant to be abused and used. Uh, They were annoyance to all the other gods. But Yahweh, total opposite. So that's pretty neat. He's the God of all grace. He has it all. He set it up himself. He didn't need anybody else to do it. To get this grace, to get this favor, this regard, this kindness from God, it's a pretty low bar. In Hebrews 11, 6 there, it says, to come to God, all we got to do is believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So all we got to do is say, hey, God, can I have some grace? You can't earn it. All you got to do is go to him, believe that he is, and believe that he'll give it to you, and he'll give it to you. That's all we got to do to get it. You don't have to kneel down. You don't have to say certain prayers. You don't have to stop swearing, smoking, whatever. You just go to him and say, hey, God, I know you're there, and I know you'll give it to me if I ask. So I'm asking, boom, you got it. It's that simple. That's how you get some of that favor and, and, and that regard. He'll He'll treat you specially, like you're some kind of special uh, person to him, which you are, of course. Hebrews there, uh, 11.6, that word rewarder, it's one who gives payment for service, a remunerator. In other words, it's like a paycheck. You do work, you do some kind of service, you get paid. Well, what's our work? What's our service to God in, in this verse? Well, to go to him and say, hey, God, I believe you are and that you will reward me. Basically, you just go to him and ask him. That's your service within this context. And that's when you'll get that grace, that special treatment from God. He'll he'll take notice of you and take care of whatever you need, whatever need it is. Um, in Romans 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23 and 24, it says that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, Again, it's nothing we earn, we've we've earned. In fact, we've gone the opposite way. We've turned our backs on God's. We all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. We don't get to the truth. But verse twenty four, it says we're justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus did the work. Christ Jesus lived the perfect life. He's the one that always obeyed God, never sinned. Can't say that about us, of course. So we were justified freely by that grace. All we had to do was confess Jesus as our Lord, believe God raised him from the dead. You're justified. Then you become under God's grace. He takes notice of you. He favors you. He gives you special treatment. He loves you. Romans 5.1, it says, after we've been justified by believing, by confessing His him as Lord, believing God raised him from the dead. Once we've done that, we're justified. And then it says we have peace with God through with, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the agent between us and God. He's like an actor has an agent, football players have an agent, whatnot. They act in your behalf, pleading between you and 
and, and the principle, in this case, God. So Jesus Christ is through, that's how we get this peace, the justification. It's through Jesus Christ. He's the one that made it possible. We couldn't go to God apart from Jesus Christ. We have to go through him. And once we're justified, it says we have peace. Well, peace with God is pretty good, I think, because before we have peace, it says in Romans 1.18, that wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And that's what we all did before we got born again, before Jesus Christ redeemed us. It was the wrath of God that was revealed to us. And that's coming up. Just read in uh, Revelations there, first few chapters about the tribulation. That's the wrath of God being revealed. And that's what we all deserve. But once we got that peace, we were justified and the wrath of God no longer was in our future. Because in Romans 5, 9, it says much more than being now justified again by his blood, not by our works, but by what Jesus Christ, the works he did, specifically his blood, drained every single drop. That's something. So that's how we were justified, by his blood. And then it says, we shall be saved from wrath again through him. It's all about Jesus Christ. He did everything. All we do is go to God, believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of us simply because we're seeking him. Nothing else. We just say, God, we just want to be with you. And it's all done. Saved from wrath. You can read Revelations in the tribulation and just know that you're not part of it. And that is just too bad that so many Christians don't understand that. Um, we are saved from that. So that should be a great comfort. First Peter 5.10 there says that God called us. He called us. And Franco, you said you brought that up in your prayer. That's pretty interesting. And it was a one-time thing. That in, in the Greek, it's what they call the aorist tense. And it's like a, a dot as opposed to a line of an ongoing action. One time God called us. And we had no way to call God. We didn't know his phone number. <laughs> See, we were without God, without hope. We had no way to get to God. He called us. He had the phone number. But when he called us, we had the free will to say yes or no. And yet, again, just like in your prayer, Franco, you, you said that you were thankful you answered yes. And I am too, because... um I don't want to go through the tribulation. I, I want to have God's favor. I want to have God's grace. So, yeah, God called you. He initiated the whole thing. He came up with the idea, and he's the one that carried it out. Uh, again, through his son, Jesus Christ. That was He was the one that really did the heavy lifting for us. So all we got to do is show up. In First uh, Thessalonians 2.13, it says, for this cause, also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of truth, or the word of God, which he heard of us, ye received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So you hold forth the word of God, and you're just so thankful for people that believe it, that it's they, they understand it's not your words, it's not your ideas, it's 
It's the word of God that actually does it. And that's how we get born again. Once again, it goes back to whose word is it? Whose idea is it? Not ours, not Baal's, not Ashtaroth's, not Moloch's. It's God's idea, Yahweh's idea. The whole thing just revolves around what he has done for us. His very nature he is to, he wants to favor somebody. He wants to give goodwill to somebody. That's just what he does. He can't do anything other than that. And so his whole program is set up with that as the foundation. It says that we're called to eternal glory. Well, glory is, is honor, dignity, splendor. It's the Greek word doxa. It's brightness, majesty, wealth, treasure. That's from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. It's also of that exalted state of blissful perfection. And that's from the Cyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. So you know it's got to be right with a name like that. But but apart from that, it's, it's the context. It definitely is what glory is. An exalted state of blissful perfection. Wow, I'd be happy with perfection. How about blissful perfection? Well, that's even better. But an exalted state of blissful perfection, that's what we're called unto. So now we're getting to see a little bit about suffering, you know, our hope in the midst of suffering. It's going to take the edge off of it a little bit. It should, it ought to anyway. But this word called unto, that word unto, it's a very small word. It's a preposition. And it's the Greek word ice, E-I-S. And if you can picture a circle, and within this circle is eternal glory. You're outside of this circle. You're not in there yet. But when God called you and you answered, you moved from outside that circle unto, into that circle. So now you're in, right in that circle, right there with eternal glory. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> A lot of times in the scriptures, and when you read them, this you'll see unto or into or something like that. If you have a, uh, what do you call it, a concordance, and you can see if it's that word ice, that's what it means. It's movement from the outside to the inside, and that's where you're going to remain. In Romans 5, 2, for example, it says that we are called unto grace, and that's it. The, this grace, this divine favor was inside that circle. We're outside that circle at first, but then when God called us and we answered, we move from the outside of that circle to the inside. That's that word unto. And it says unto where we stand. We stand. We remain. We don't just pass through. We stand in that grace. So that's uh, Romans 5, 2. So we've been called unto eternal glory. You're in there. You're not going outside anymore. You're stuck there. Too bad. I hope you like it. <laughs> yeah, too. Anyway, in Colossians 127, it, it says, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery or this secret, the secret that God hid, hid in himself among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that Christ is in you. That gives you the ability to speak in tongues, as well as all the other eight manifestations. So every time you speak in tongues, and we've been talking a lot about that, but every time you speak in tongues, that is a reminder. It should be a reminder of your future eternal glory, of your future uh, state of exalted bliss. 
So that's pretty good that God has given us that. Even though we're still in this world, he's given us that ability that we can constantly remind ourselves of what's to come. In Romans 6 or Romans 8, 16 to 18, it says that that spirit, the Christ in you, bears witness with your spirit, with your mind, more or less, that we are the children of God. See, it reminds you of that. And if children, it, it also reminds you that you're an heir, an heir of not your not your your rich uncle, your rich grandpa, or anything like that. That'd be pretty good. But you're an heir of God. You're joint heirs with Christ. What did God promise Christ? Pretty much everything. The kingdom of the world. You're joint heirs from that. That's what we have to look forward to. But then it says, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. So, yes, we do suffer now, but we will be glorified together with Jesus Christ. We'll have that exalted state of blissful Yahoo. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed unto us. So whenever you suffer, whenever you feel, uh, whenever you feel down, first thing in your mind, yeah, it's kind of bad now, but it's nothing compared to what's coming. Just make that automatic. And I think it'll help a lot with, with the stuff that we suffer with, whatever it is, um, health, money, relationships, whatever, uh, those things do come. But just remember, ah, this is nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. That's why in Ephesians 3, it says, if ye then be risen with Christ, that should be since ye then be risen with Christ, because in, in 2.22 of Colossians, it says that we are. And if or since ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above on the glory that's to come, not on things on the earth, of the suffering that we might be experiencing now. That's set your affections, your thought on those things, not on the suffering. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. You know, people are afraid to die. You know what? We're dead now. What we're going to do is we're going to have our life. We think we're alive now, but our real true life is hid with Christ in God. So that's what we have to look forward to. We're not going to be, we're not, we're, I'm, you don't, in fact, the Bible even says we're not, it says we're going to go to sleep, but we're going to be raised to life. So we kind of got things backwards a little bit. Uh, we think we're alive. We're going to be dead. Other way around with God. What a fantastic truth that is. What a way to think about things. And then it says when Christ, who is our life? That's our life. It's hid with Christ and God. It just said that. Christ, when he shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory, in that elevated state of blissful uh, uh, wonderfulness. So, But that's coming in the future. It's not here yet. Uh, it says in, in 2 Thessalonians, it says, whereunto salvation, basically, from verse 13, so the salvation, he called us to salvation by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The glory is coming. He's the God uh, of all grace, and we're going to have that glory. It's on the way. He called us once again. Who called who? We didn't call him. He called us. And he did it through the gospel. The word by 
Just one more little preposition here for you. That word by is the word dia, D-I-A, and that always signifies agency. So he called us by the gospel. When you hear the gospel, that's how you can then believe. Obviously, it has to come through something. So it's through that gospel that we can obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who invented the gospel? Wasn't Baal. It wasn't Moloch. Once again, it's God, the, the, the God of all grace, his very nature. That's all he can do. Um, the salvation there, it's a, it's, it's a state of safety, of being preserved from harm and danger. That's the Greek word soteria. And that's literally what it means to be safe. You're preserved from harm and danger. We've been saved from the wrath to come. But in this verse specifically, it says we've been saved from death. Again, we're going to be, life is to come. We're, death is not a problem anymore for us, for Christians. What all we have to look forward to is life and a life of glory at that. So again, the gospel is the agent. God set it up, not us. Everything is by grace, all God's idea. Now it says there in 1 Peter 5.10, that, yeah, we're going to suffer a little while. That's nothing new. They should have known that because John 16, 33, Jesus said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. It's pretty plain. I don't know how you'd interpret that. I think it means that in the world, you're going to have tribulation. It, but but he also said then that the world passes away. So this world in which we, we have tribulation, it passes away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's in 1 John 2.17. So who cares about the world? We have a much greater hope that this world is going to pass away. But the will of God, no, it'll never pass away. It lives and abides forever. And his will is for us to enjoy eternal glory with him. So there you go. This word, um, we're going to suffer. It says suffer a little while. Oh, five minutes, 10 minutes. What is that? Well, the RV commentary, and I think from the context of the overall context of the scriptures, as well as the near context here, um, the REV commentary says, here this phrase refers to the Christian's whole life, which in contrast to everlasting glory is only a little while. To the person who is suffering, their little while lifetime can seem very long indeed. So, so yeah, we're going to suffer a little while. That's this lifetime. And that's one reason that it, uh, it, it 510, they're talking about being made perfect and, and established and strengthened and settled. That is in the future because in this lifetime, those things are a work in progress, but they're not going to be complete until Jesus comes back, which I wish you'd come back before I'm done here. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe. He can do a better teaching, trust me. Or Philippians 1, uh, 129. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, so we've been given that privilege, but also to suffer for his sake. Well, that seems a little weird. Um, wow, thanks, God. <laughs> you know, at a first reading, it might sound like that. But when you think about it, what this is saying is that, look, God needs workers. He needs people to to bring other people so they can share in, in the same grace that you have and the same hope for the future life that you have. He needs workers to do that. And so he gives us that privilege. So it's a great privilege to be able to do that. And obviously it often goes against the world. 
Hence, we're going to suffer from time to time. So, yeah, it's a privilege to be able to do that because we could say, no, no thanks. But when you do that, and, and I think that the more you, I think the more that you believe God and endeavor to walk for him, I think the devil takes notice of that and he might hit you harder and harder and harder. But that is a privilege. Think of it that way, because you know, in the end, he's going to be toast, burnt toast. In Second Timothy there, it says, Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake. See, Paul thought about the other people. And that's what we're to do. That's the that's what love is, thinking about other people. And whatever happens to me, I'll just endure it. I'm doing it for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. See, you see a theme here? Eternal glory on the horizon, coming down the pike. But so that's why it's a privilege that you can share that with other people, despite any suffering you might have. Doesn't matter when you really look at the whole picture. Um, Paul endured. He remained. He, he, he had fortitude. He underwent trials, but he didn't let them get him down. He stood fast. He, whatever came his way, he did it. And not for his sake, but for the other people's sake. One Peter, it says uh, in, in verse 413, it says, rejoice in so much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. Rejoice in that? Again, that sounds a little weird. That when his glory shall be revealed, he may be glad also with exceeding joy. So, yeah, we joy now that we can partake of Christ's sufferings because we know, well, you're doing the work of God. You're, you're building rewards for the future. But when the glory comes, it's going to be exceeding joy. Again, the sufferings of this world are not to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. So that's what, uh, that's there in 1 Peter 4.13. It's also worth keeping in mind that nobody is alone in suffering. We all face the same thing. In 1 Peter 5.9, it said, resist him, the devil, if you remember, standing firm in your faith and in the knowledge that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. So nobody's alone in this. We all experience it. And that can be a certain amount of comfort. And in fact, it's not only our brothers and sisters that are suffering, because Romans 8 says there that the whole creation is groaning and travailing in pain. So yeah, it's we're not alone. That's the main thing. We help one another. We can, because I, I, I've, I've suffered, you know, maybe I, I have the same empathy. We can have empathy for one another. We can help each other in that regard. In First Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And then it says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So that's how we can have empathy. We just remind the other person that we're talking to, whatever whatever they might have. We just kind of try to put them into mind that, look, yeah, there's suffering in this world, but there's going to be a time coming when Jesus is coming back. There's going to be the voice of the archangel. The dead in Christ are going to rise. And if you're alive, you'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. You know, I kind of always thought for many, many years, boy, I hope I'm alive. I hope I'm alive because that'd be sure cool to see it. But then 
you know, if I should go to sleep, I think it'd be kind of cool to come boring up out of six feet out of from under the ground. That'd be kind of cool. Then get your new body. So whatever, either way, I'll take it. But anyway, we comfort another with these words because we do know that we're all going through it. One John, in, in First John, five times it says, love one another. Five times, and it's not that long of a of a, uh, a a book there. But five times it says, "Love one another. Give give to them. Don't think about yourself. Do what's best for them, not yourself." So that's how we can comfort one another with that hope that's coming. It says that we're going to be perfect, perfected, established, strengthened, and settled. That's all part of that glory. Those are going to be results of that. And perfect means we're going to be. It's the word kat or tizo. It means we're going to be completely repaired. We're going to be reformed. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it talks about repairing their nets. That's what the apostles were doing. They're repairing their nets. That's that same word. We're going to be back to Adam and Eve, what God originally meant for us to be. This verse is all, or this word is also used in Galatians, where it says, if a, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. So bring him back to the original state. Uh, that's that word. So we're going to be perfected. We're going to be what God originally meant for us to be. We're not going to have uh, bodies of sinful flesh anymore. In Philippians 3.21, it says that that uh, Jesus Christ will change our vile bodies that will be fashioned like to his glorious body the body that God originally meant for us to have. That's going to be restored. So that's what we have to look forward to, that we're going to be perfected like that. We're going to be fixed up. We're going to be repaired. Um, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, it says there that, that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trump shall sound. Listen for that all day. Go outside and just listen for the trump. You know, why not? It could come. And the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's the word cat artizo. We're going to have a body like his body. It's going to be a lot better. No more headaches, no more aches and pains, no more heart problems, no more eye problems. It's just going to be a perfect body. Again, what God originally meant for us to have. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal immortality. That people have been... Doing that, what, that search for immortality all over, they go through the jungles looking for the perfect drug, whatever. Well, that's not where it is. It's in the gospel through Christ Jesus that we are going to have that immortality and incorruption. So, yeah, again, something to look forward to. So, it also says we're going to be established. Established, that's the words to read so. It means to step fast, to turn resolutely in a certain direction. It's used in uh, Luke 9.51, where it says that Jesus, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's the word sterizo, steadfastly he set his face. In other words, he wasn't going to turn back. He made up his mind, he's going to go through it, and he did. So that's a pretty cool word there. Um, It's also used in Romans 1625, it says, now to him that is a power to establish you, sterizo, establish you, unmovable. You're not going to get moved. You're set in cement. You, according to his gospel, not according to Greek philosophy, certainly not according to wokeness, but again, you're established according to 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, specifically according to the revelation of the mystery of the sacred secret, which was kept secret since the world began. But now that truth is revealed. Now you can be established in the truth within that 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 realm of grace, within that circle of grace and the future hope of glory. You're set there. If you want to get out, too bad. It's, uh, what is it, Hotel California? You check in, but you can't check out. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. That's how it is. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, in Ezekiel 36, 26, it says he's going to give us a new heart and a new spirit. You take away the, the stony heart of our flesh, give us a heart. Uh, 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 to take away the stony heart of your flesh and give us a soft heart, more or less, but a new heart. So this is kind of interesting. This is what we're going to get, and this is why things are going to be so much better. Our minds store data in little sections of the brain. It's called a neural network, and it's stored data in the brain. It's like a file in a hard drive. And these networks, these neural networks, are formed by everything we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. And it begins the immediate, immediately when we're born. The second we're born, our hard drive is blank, but immediately we begin learning things. And so that data gets stored in your mind. And for example, when we see a chair, you look at a chair and there's a neural network in there somewhere that fires and it immediately, you know, everything there is to know about chairs. Specifically, it, it, it it's, you know, well, I can go sit down there, get off, take a load off my feet. It just happens automatically and in the flash of an eye. It makes you comfortable enough to be able to sit on a chair, that neural network of what a chair is. Now, here's the problem, though, with neural networks. Some agree with the truth, but some don't. Many are falsehoods that you learned from youth that affect your behavior for the rest of your life. You can be totally unaware. Well, you are totally unaware of many of these 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 neural networks that trigger certain actions. If you were told constantly as you were brought up, you're a bad boy, you're a bad girl, that's going to affect your behavior. And you won't know why. You might end up being super defensive. You might end up being super aggressive because of that. And when something happens to you, that neural network, you're a bad boy, fires. You don't even know about it, but it has a huge effect on your action when that network fires. So, and again, many of these neural networks are flat out lies, but they affect our behavior. And again, we're totally unaware of it. Well, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and we're going to get a new heart, okay? These networks are stored. Well, we're going to get a new one. And guess what? There's not going to be any neural networks in there that are a lie. They're all going to be truth. So all the neural networks that you have now that go against the truth will be gone. To put it in the vernacular, no more stupid thoughts. Okay, so that's coming. That's coming. That's part of what we got to look forward to. Again, whenever we suffer, try to remember this. Put this in your mind, these kind of things. It also says we're going to be strengthened. That means we're going to be invigorated. It's the Greek word, sthaneo. It means we're going to be invigorated to to, to confirm in spiritual knowledge and power. Now, this is the only occurrence of it in the whole uh, Bible there in, in, in uh, 1 Peter 5.10, but there's an antonym of it, and it's a and that means without vigor. 
uh, vigorless, weak, sick. We're told in Luke 10, 9 to heal the sick. That's the athenos that are therein and say to them, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. That's kind of interesting. That's the solution right there. Just tell somebody that, remind them of that, heal them with that idea in mind that the kingdom of God is, is, is come nigh. Of course, that was in the gospels. It's a little different, but the principle is still there that that's how we heal the sick by reminding them of the truth. Matthew, it says, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's athenosis. That sickness, that weakness, that's the opposite of what God's going to do. We're going to be strengthened. We're going to be invigorated. No more sickness, no more weakness. We'll be perfectly sound, just like a perfectly constructed building. It also says we're going to be settled. And that's the last thing that's going to happen to us, as if the first three aren't enough. But we're going to get one more. We're going to be settled. And that means to lay the basis for, to erect, to consolidate, to bring everything together. It's used in, uh, it's, the, it's the word themaleo. It's used in Matthew 7. It says, the rain descended and the floods came. Talking about a house, a, a house that was built a sturdy house, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon, that's the word, themaleo, a rock. So that's how you're going to be. You're going to be, well, there's not going to be any floods there or winds or anything like that, but even if there was, you would still be solid as a rock. You're not going to be moved. But again, the truth is, there are not going to be floods or anything like that coming up. So even though you don't really even need to be founded in a certain way, you're still going to be solid as a rock. You're not going to be blown around with every wind of doctrine and so forth. You're not going to be moved by these false uh, neural networks that you have in your mind. They'll be gone. You'll be solid as a rock. In Ephesians, it says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by believing that ye being rooted and grounded, that's the word right there, athemaleo, in love. That's what we're rooted and grounded in, thinking about other people as opposed to ourselves. Um, that's why we want Christ to dwell in our hearts. The more we're conscious of that, the more ability we'll have to think about other people, not look at our own needs. Paul was a great example of that. Anyway, it says we'll be rooted and grounded in love that we may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, what he gave. The more we give, the more we can appreciate what he gave. And then we're going to give more. We'll appreciate more what he gives. It's, it's a, a, what do you call that? A circular thing? I forget what they call that when it, one thing reinforces another and just back and forth all day long. But anyway, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that's kind of interesting there, but it's what it says. It's too great to know, but we can know it because of God's grace, of course, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's pretty cool. All the fullness of God. God is full of grace. He's, that's, He's got all the grace. We're filled with that. So we, in turn, then, can show that favor, that kindness to other people. So that's pretty cool. So anyway, just to finish out, after after saying all that about First uh, Peter 5.11, but the God of all grace, who hath called us uh, to his eternal glory, and he's going to perfect us. He's going to 
establish us. He's going to settle us. He's going to strengthen us. To that God, it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And amen basically means it's FDA certified prime beef. You can count on it. It's the truth. So anyway, that's what I had to share. And yeah, when we suffer, just remember, it's only for a little while. And then there's something far, far, far greater coming that will last more than a little while, namely for ever and ever. So God bless. And uh, again, thanks for allowing me to share that. Amen. Feels like